morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Kelly Barnhill, whose book, The Girl Who Drank the Moon, was the winner of the 2017 John Newberry Medal. Her newest book is the short story collection, Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories. I'm interviewing Kelly at the 14th Annual Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors in Winston-Salem, and we're thrilled to have her as part of this year's festival. Kelly, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to start by talking about you, because what you said about yourself on your website is more intriguing and possibly better written than anything I've read on an author website, and I've read a lot of author websites. Fantastic. So, so let me just let me quote from here for our, our listeners. You, you write, Kelly Barnhill writes books. It is a strange job, but to be fair, she is a strange woman, so perhaps it makes sense. She is a former teacher, former bartender, former waitress, former activist, former park ranger, former secretary, former janitor, and former church guitar player. The sum of these experiences have prepared her for exactly nothing save for the telling of stories, which she's been doing quite happily for some time now. Can you pick one or two of those former careers and tell us a little bit about how they led to your career as a writer? Well, first of all, um, what I like to tell kids when I, when I go and visit kids is that we can notice from this long list that I got fired a lot. <laughs> and it's, to be fair, it's not a complete list. And so that actually, that experience prepares you quite well for the business of being a writer because mm -hmm. you have a lot of people saying no to you a lot. Um, so that would be the first thing. But um, I, I would say I was a park ranger up in Olympic National Park. My husband and I uh, were at the same ranger station and uh, at Marmot Lake, which is about oh, yeah. 30 miles in um, in any direction. And so we were there for most of the summer from uh, from when the, when the snow left to the end of the summer and it was amazing and but I think in a lot of ways that was preparatory for the experience of writing a novel because when you write in a novel it's so immersive right you mm -hmm. know every blade of grass you know every trail you know the lay of the land in a very intimate way uh, and when you're in the wilderness for that long uh, you have a sense of intimacy with the land that you don't really when you're sort of out in you know sort of like the human world <laughs> yeah. um, uh, where we don't have to be thinking about our, our environment all the time because things are just sort of we have stairs we don't have to like <laughs> navigate down this rock face or whatever. Um, and, and so I do think that that was um, uh, preparatory for that. I also had a um, kind of an extraordinary encounter with a cougar. Um, uh, and I actually wrote an essay about this for, um, for Powell's books uh, uh, about the difference between um, writing a novel and writing a short story, uh, that writing a novel is this immersive relationship with the text and with a place, whereas a, a short story is an experience. You know, it's on the blade of a knife. Um, and, um, uh, and so... So that larger experience has um, prepared me for both parts of my career, which has been useful. Another thing that leapt out at me from your website is that you have three children. I do. And I sometimes find it hard to find time to write, and I have no children and no, no discernible <laughs> career other than writing. I mean, I have no children living at home. Uh, but how do you balance the life of a parent with the life of a writer? 
Well, it's really hard. Um, I mean, being a parent of small kids, uh, and my kids are not small anymore. Um, uh, but when, uh, but when I was doing a lot of my sort of early work, my kids were very small, and and you 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 live in this state of constant desperation, you know, <laughs> um, and that's just your life. And uh, um, when my kids were small, I. In order to have time to write, I would wake up at four in the morning and I would write until six and then I would wake my oldest up at six and get her ready for kindergarten and get her on the bus and then make breakfast for everybody else and uh, would sometimes be able to like add a sentence or two. I would just sort of keep the computer open. Uh, This is when I was still composing on computer. Now I do all of my my composition longhand. Mm. Um, But but that's just what I would do. I didn't really write anything very good during that time, um, but um, but you know you find you you have to sort of find ways to be able to sort of um, uh, sandwich things in. You know, yeah. uh, when I was writing my second book, um, Ironhearted Violet, it was this terrible winter in Minnesota. Um, I think we had the entire month of January where it didn't get above negative five, and I, I would still take the kids out every day because uh, we live right by a really awesome sledding hill, and you bundle them up because it's important that they get outside every day. But you can't do that for very long. And they would be stir-crazy. So, oh, it was so disgusting. I would take them to the nearest McDonald's Playland. And, um, and you know, those tubes, and they're greasy and terrible. And sometimes somebody pees in there. And, oh, it's awful. And I would just... I would get my, we were so broke at the time too. I would get a cup of coffee. I would say, you guys play. And, um, and I wrote, that's how I wrote, um, Ironhearted Violet on my little notebook, um, uh, entirely longhand in this echoey, terrible space. Um, and that's the thing. Like you just have to make do when you're a parent. I mean, now my kids are older and it's not like it's easier now. Like now it's, um, I live in my minivan and I have, you know, a bunch of stinky soccer players in the (laughs) back seats and, and, um, and I'm waiting for all, and, and again, um, uh, you know, you have the the notebook in the car and, um, uh, you find this little bit of time and that little bit of time. But I think, I think the thing that I think that one thing that I try to encourage, you know, uh, writers with young children, um, uh, is to remind them that they don't feel very efficient you don't feel very efficient. Yep, you yep. feel like you're just, um, uh, uh, you feel like you're kind of falling apart, but they are actually way more efficient than they think. Um, and they are um, uh, ruthlessly delegative in their thinking and how they sort of organize their their various tasks, even though they don't realize that that, that either. Um, and so when the kids actually do go to school and you finally have four hours to yourself, it's amazing. Like, you get so much done. <laughs> we, have a, we have a two-year-old friend that we look after usually one day a week. And, awesome. and I sometimes find I get more work done on that day because as funny. soon as he goes down for his nap, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I got two hours. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to do anything but work. So. I know. You don't check Twitter. You don't like do laundry right, then. Right. <laughs> do you read to your children what you're working on? Never. 
Interesting. Never. Well, so actually, I shouldn't say never. So um, uh, two of my books started out as um, not something that I was reading, but something that I was telling to my kids. Um, uh, When my kids were little, they would um, uh, they wanted me to tell them a story from my imagination. Oh yeah. And I would give them. I would say, okay, give me something to tell a story about, and they would say, well, mm." so like for example, Ironhearted Violet started out. um, uh, We have this little cabin in the woods on uh, the Kettle River in Minnesota. This is a little shack. There's no running water. There's no electricity. Everything's by candlelight. Mm. And um, and so I had the girls all tucked in and they wanted a story. And I was like, okay, what am I telling a story about? And they said, well, we wanted you to tell us a story about a princess, but not a pretty princess because pretty princesses are boring. Um, <laughs> and so that is how Ironhearted Violet began. Um, uh, similarly, The Witch's Boy uh, began when we were in... Uh, Shenandoah National Park on this trail, uh, starting from the Skyline Ridge, going down to this um, uh, uh, this waterfall, beautiful uh, Bridalville waterfall. Yeah, yeah. My son was six, and he ran the whole way, you know, three miles <laughs> down, and uh, uh, and then, but then we had to go three miles back up, and it was really hard, and he was so tired and wanted me to carry him, and that was not going to happen. I was like, all right, buddy, let's how we do a story. Uh, give me three things. And he says, okay, fine. I want you to tell me a story about a boy who steals his mother's magic. And I was like, okay, I'm in. That's all, That sounds pretty great. Um, I was like, okay, well, why? Why does he steal his mother's magic? And he says, uh, to protect it from bandits. And I was like, Buddy, I'm super in. Okay, he's, I need he's one. doing all the work for you. I know, right? <laughs> um, uh, and um, uh, and I said, okay, I need one more thing. And he says, well, there should be a wolf in it. A good wolf or a bad wolf? A good wolf. Well, and I was like, well, wolves are really big. I don't know if you've ever seen wolves in the wild. Um, uh, uh, we came pretty close to them um, uh, uh, one time when we were up in the Boundary Waters. And they're, they're, they're astonishingly big. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, and he's like, yeah, you're right. A kid wolf like me. Um, uh, and so... So I got to the point in the story when Ned is in a sack, tied to the back of a horse, going through the the dangerous forest and like the ropes break and he falls into a ravine. And then we got to the road and Leo was like, is that the end? I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> now I have to write a book. I have to write a book. <laughs> we do nap time stories, but it's sort of the opposite purpose in that we're trying to get our little friend to go to sleep. Yes, and yes, so yes. I, he wants me to tell him a story, but I try to make it the most boring story right. possible. <laughs> so there are long lists of ingredients when oh, Red Riding yes. Hood makes cookies and things like that. So. <laughs> Good. That's a good strategy, actually. Back in the 1980s, a few blocks from here, uh, I ran an antiquarian bookstore, mm-hmm. and we specialized in children's literature. And not only did I sell a lot of 18th century books published by John Newberry himself, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of customers who collected Newberry medal-winning books. And a lot of those books were some of my favorite books from childhood. The 21 Balloons, the mixed-up files of Mrs. Mm-hmm. Basil E. Frankweiler I just read over and over again. And now... That list includes The Girl Who Drank the Moon. What does that feel like? And and how did you find out? What was that process like? Uh, Well, uh, it took a really long time for me to kind of integrate it into my reality. And Mm -hmm. it still really isn't. Um, uh, And, uh, yeah, it was... 
It was a, an astonishing and shocking thing. I think some people are more savvy about their careers than I am. Um, I think some people have a really good inkling that they are likely to get a call that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do smart things like wake up <laughs> and like be ready. And maybe, maybe it's very sad for them if they don't actually get a call, but like the, um, but I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, I had no idea that my book was being talked about in that way. I had no idea that, um, I had no idea that there were librarians that minute that were, um, uh, discussing my book in depth in that way. I had no idea. Um, and, um, so, I mean, the way that people find out that they got the Newberry is that you get called really early in the morning. And so for me, it was 5am. Uh, I am lucky that I was in, um, uh, the central time zone because, uh, uh, the young man that won the Caldecott that year, um, was in San Diego. Uh, so he got called at three in the three morning, in the morning. <laughs> um, uh, but he was very smart cause he was awake. Um, uh, and, and so I, um, uh, it's a very strange thing to have your phone ring and it's a number you don't know. And so your heart sinks cause you think it's somebody telling you really terrible news. It's just exactly what I thought. Sure. Um, and, um, and instead you hear a room full of super enthusiastic and cheerful librarians <laughs> totally changing your life. Um, I, it was, and the other funny thing too, is that, um, so the, you know, I, you're, you're trying to make sense and you can't make any sense because you just woke up and you're saying dumb stuff. Like, how is this even possible? And, um, and then like, because I'm a nice Midwesterner, I'm just like, I should know everybody's names. And I wanted everybody to introduce themselves and, oh, nice. How do you do? Nice to meet you. Um, and then they said, well, you can't tell anybody. Um, until the announcement. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But can I at least tell my husband? Because I think he knows. Um, And uh, because my husband doesn't wake up to a lot. He's a very sound sleeper, (laughs) but he did wake up to this. Um, uh, But then... my son Leo is 13, and when he was young, he was a very reluctant reader, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which was a very difficult thing for me because, you know, this is my industry and I'm an educator and all that stuff. And so we would read novels out loud to, to um, and for a long time, that was his only, you know, books that he would, that were read for pleasure at all. I mean, he would read at school and he was a fine reader. He just would not read for pleasure. And, um, and because of that, um, I, he, we had all kinds of strong opinions about what books should win the Newberry, he right. and I. And so we would watch that telecast every year. Um, oh, wow. And we would have like our own horses that we were rooting for and stuff. And, and, um, and, and we actually still read out loud. I mean, he is actually a big bookworm and has his own stack, but we still have this time that we, where we read out loud. So I wake him up and I was like, Leo, I have really big news for you. And he looks at me, he's like, What? <laughs> and I said, I won the Newberry. <laughs> and he stares at me for a long time. And then he says, the real one? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. They made a fake one just for your mother. Just no, your mom, of course yeah. they mean the real one. <laughs> I can remember I, my first novel was chosen as a Barnes & Noble recommends book back when they yeah. had that program. And we couldn't tell anybody for a couple of months. It's 
terrible. And like even with and Penguin, there were only about a half a dozen people who knew. And and we would and everybody in town knew that I had a this novel coming out. And I'd walk down the street and people would say, Hey, how are things going? Any news? How's everything? And we'd just go, Everything's fine, yes, everything's great. Yes. <laughs> you just Nothing sort of smile and walk right by. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> A lot of your stories, I think this is certainly true of the stories in the new collection and, and, and of some of the other ones as well, contain elements of magical realism. Mm -hmm. What do you see, if anything, as the connection between the fairy tale tradition of the 18th and 19th century and magical realism in the 20th and 21st centuries? Oh, I think a lot. Um, and of course, I mean, the um, the fairy tales that we know of from, from that period of time, uh, they're all way older than that, right? You yeah. know, they were just collected then and kind of shaped then. There were other um, uh, fairy tale collectors outside of the Grimm's that were um, uh, writing down the stories in um, uh, um, much closer to as they they were being told, and so those those um, uh, what the Grimms were doing, and they did more and more of this over time in each one of their their different iterations of their collections, where they would uh, they would try to shape the stories into more uh, normative um, uh, conventions of storytelling, um, uh, and so their first their their first edition reads much different than their 11th edition. Um, but one of the things that I think um, uh, connects that kind of storytelling and that kind of need for storytelling with uh, what's happening with magic realism now is is this, this sense of, of, of wonder and um, uh, at, at how odd the world is, right? And so um, what you see again and again is this need to show the strangeness in regular things and the ordinariness of extraordinary things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, the strange and the normal and the normal and the strange. And, um, and, so, and so that is what I've endeavor to do in my, um, my storytelling, um, uh, from in my short stories. I mean, short stories, as I said before, they are an encounter, right? Um, uh, they are the, the shape of them and how we build them is as much, is much more, um, uh, it's much more akin to poetry than it mm -hmm. is to mm -hmm. novel writing, right? Um, uh, because, uh, the architecture of it is much more, um, uh, exacting. Um, and so I think, um, uh, uh, for, for those kinds of stories, um, uh, uh, the way in which, um, uh, we can completely normalize, um, uh, uh, really extraordinary things and very magical things, it allows us to show in relief how super weird regular life is. Yeah. It's yeah. so weird, you know, um, and 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 sometimes um, uh, dangerous, you know, and um, and sometimes mean, um, and and so I think I think that that's what draws me to that kind of storytelling. And for me, um, as a kid who read fairy tales obsessively as a child, um, I think that I just have that brain um, that is wired in that way because of deep impressioning. <laughs> I, I noticed that, particularly in the first story, Mrs. Sorensen and the Sasquatch, that, that making what to us would seem wildly unlikely to the the characters in that story, it all seems you know, fairly normal, maybe slightly eccentric, right. but, but not in any way unbelievable. Right. It's just, and so, the, so it starts to feel normal to the reader as well. Exactly. Um, because exactly. of the way that the characters react to the, to the situation. This is actually the first time we've um, had somebody on the show to talk about a book of short stories. Mm. So what's 
what is it that makes these stories more than just, here's some stories I wrote? What, what makes them a cohesive collection? Really good question. Um, because I thought about how I was going, you know, what stories to include and which stories not, and uh, for a long time. And um, making a collection is a really strange experience um, because you're, um, uh, you're, you start to find these through lines in your work, um, uh, these things that you that you wrestle with as an artist again and again and again, uh, but you're not really aware of that, you know? And, and so I, mostly what I wanted to do was to find these sort of, um, uh, these bright lines that, um, uh, that, uh, that go through, um, uh, these different, um, uh, aspects of my work, especially, you know, sort of over time, because some of those, I mean, in that collection, I have the very first story that I ever published, hmm. uh, is, is in there. And, um, and that was was really fun to do to um, uh, to sort of look at you know that it's it's these same themes that just keep on sort of bubbling up to the surface, but I always but you always see it in a different way, right? You know, you're you're going to the same bit of clay and making something new every right. time, right. you know. Um, and so, um, really, what um, uh, you know, right, making a collection, it's almost like you know, for those of us who grew up in the '90s um, or were teenagers <laughs> in the '90s, we had our mixtapes, you know, and oh, yes. and there was a science. We to had those mix. in the eighties too, by Indeed. the way. Indeed, well, I'm sure you did. <laughs> they and were on cassette, but still. oh yeah, same, same with us. We still had them on cassette, and you know, with in Sharpie and whatever, and um, and we would give them as gifts or yeah. like, or or we would use them, you know, to help with like a very you know particular situation. You know, how many post breakup mixtapes have my That's friends right. made me? <laughs> a thousand, and uh, um, and so in a, in a lot of ways. Is um, uh, you why you put one song next to another song? Um, uh, you know, for if if we were trained musicians, we would know why we were doing that. But really, we were operating on a gut feeling. Yeah. You know, like this is the proper song to follow. Um, and and in a lot of ways, that's really what it was for me. It was like you're kind of you're going blind and you you're going by shape um, uh, and um, and and getting the different stories to fit together. Right. Right. I love in the opening story, Mrs. Sorensen and the Sasquatch. First of all, it's an amazing title, which, which tells the reader exactly what to expect. It's, yeah. it's all right That's there in the title. <laughs> um, but you don't shy away from choices in form that might be discouraged by the average writing teacher. You start out with a very long sentence. Oh, yeah. Um, a couple of pages later, you have an entire paragraph that's in parentheses. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think I think it works yeah. really well. And and my question is sort of a broad one is what do you see as a relationship between form and narrative? Oh, I think they're inextricably linked. Um, because you know how the the telling of a story um, I, it's um, the the reason why form matters is because it indicates to the reader here is your relationship that we're having. This mm-hmm. is the we're established the relationship. And in a lot of ways, um, I, I mean, as writers, we're basically like going on first dates all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, because we are, we are communicating like, this is what it's going to be like with me, you know, yeah. and, and this is why you should come, right? And, um, and so we're kind of wooing our readers. And, and so the form, um, uh, I, it, it, it sets up what kind of relationship you want to be having and, um, and what you expect from your readers too. I have 
have high expectations of my readers. Like I don't want to spell a lot of things out for them. I want them to leap with me. Um, and so I think um, I, what I try to do with form is to just let them know you're going to have to fill in these gaps on your own, yeah. dude. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a really good point. I I have these discussions often with my agent and my editor because I have this habit of writing novels that go back and forth in time. Yeah. And we always have this discussion about do we. Do we frame it with a date at the beginning, mm-hmm. which, for instance, we did with Bookman's Tale? And the one I'm mm-hmm. working on right now, I finally said, no, I think I think I mention when the time period is in the first paragraph of every section. Yeah. And they don't need to me to hold their hand quite that much. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I do see it as a, as a partnership between, yeah. between the writer and the reader. I was a playwright for a long time, and you see the partnership there really clearly, yeah. that you're collaborating with actors and with directors. Yeah. But I think with, with writing a novel or a book of short stories... It's still a creative collaboration. Absolutely. You, we as, as writers do the first half, mm-hmm. and then we don't see the second half happen. But yeah. we know, we hope that it's going to happen. Yeah. I say that all the time to people, actually, that it's not the writer who builds the story. It's the reader who builds right. the story. Right. Our, our job as writers is to, um, uh, is to provide the raw materials, to provide the frame, um, and to give them a lot of pretty sentences, yep. you know? Um, and, but it is, the, it is the reader's job to build the story, and they're going to build something that like we didn't even expect and that happens all the time I love that in the final scene of Mrs. Sorensen you have some of your animals essentially exhibiting human characteristics (laughs) and some of your humans essentially more or less acting like animals. Yeah. Are you hinting at a deeper truth here? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not hinting is the right word. Oh, of course. And, um, and, and I mean, this comes up in my work a lot too, is just are the human connection with nature. And, um, and, uh, and, and this is probably the one in which I, I go most explicitly in, into sort of my, um, uh, um, my own sort of personal connection between uh, the natural world and the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and um, and to have these moments in which you know everything sort of coexists in this sort of like shining Eden, you know, yeah. um, and um, you know, and for both good and you know, I mean, that's it's one of the things that C.S. Lewis tells us, right? You know, yeah. that like you know we um, uh, you know, um, uh, heaven is something that we choose, right? And um, and that is that is certainly the case here. Um, uh, and anyway, I, uh, um, gosh, I had a really fun time writing that scene. Yeah, I can, I can imagine it would be. It's, it's, a, it's a really fun story. And Thank you. I want to skip now to the longest story in the collection. Oh, yeah. We could almost call it a novella, or maybe we should call a novella, it a novella. Yeah. Um, called The Unlicensed Magician. Tell us a little bit about, if, if this were a novel and you were giving the elevator pitch, how would you describe this story? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, I've never had to do that with this one, actually, <laughs> ever. Gosh, I didn't even realize that um, uh, if I was to give the uh, the elevator sp- uh, the elevator pitch um, uh, I would call it you know this is a story of um, uh, the girl who wasn't supposed to exist who somehow changes the world right. um, uh, uh, but also it's a story about power and about um, uh, sort of the the hoarding of resources um, uh, it's about um, uh, sort of the power of youth um, uh, to um, uh, to sort of you know topple you know grasping old men um, uh, and um, and and but also um, the, the really kind of the tenacity of human love too mm-hmm. um, and I wrote this book 
I mean, it's not, I mean, so this was published originally um, by PS Publishing, which is a, a small publisher in England. They're amazing. Uh, and and um, and it won the World Fantasy Award, which oh, yeah. is what I was not expecting. Um, and I wasn't expecting anything to this happen to happen with this book at all. I wrote it by accident uh, while I was avoiding my in-laws in Florida, <laughs> which I highly recommend, actually. And um, and so and it just it all poured out at once. I wrote it over the course of a couple of days. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, most of the time, writing is really hard, and our job is terrible, and nobody should do it. And um, But, you know, we just labor over every word. But every once in a while, yeah. the universe throws us a bone yep. and we get a gift story. Yep. And that this was my gift story. I sat down and I started writing it and um, I started in the middle and it sort of worked out its way out um, uh, to the beginning and to the end. And really, and, and I knew that that was happening really kind of right away. I knew what the shape of the story was going to be. I knew it was at stake for the characters. And, and I knew in my guts that this was going to be 30,000 words. And, and I was just like, I'm writing a damn novella. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? There's no market for novellas. The one thing you can't sell. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> and, and I was just like, but I can't stop. So I just wrote the thing. And then it sat in a drawer for the proverbial drawer for, yeah. you know, maybe two years. And um, PS Publishing was interested in publishing a, a collection of mine way back when. And, you know, they gave me a contract and paid me 400 bucks. And um, it's this tiny, tiny publisher but they do beautiful beautiful little slip covered you know mm. limited edition I was thrilled with it and but they you know they're a tiny operation it's just two guys and you know they they ended up with too many short story collections and they were just like how about we we publish a novella instead mm-hmm. and I was like weird that you'd say that <laughs> one and then it ended up like um just having this other life that I wasn't expecting because there's I think that that's kind of the story of being a writer too that there's all kinds of stuff that ends up happening that we don't expect like there's no way to plan for anything you know so the in the story the unlicensed magician we're in a a universe where every time this comet comes by a small number of children are born with magic. Who are magical. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the sort of dictator character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gathers them all up so yeah. that he can he can use their powers. And the main character in the story is is one of those children who who slips through. And, yeah, and, she was born stillborn, um, uh, and then did not stay stillborn. Right, right. <laughs> but she is to almost everyone invisible. Yes. And when we meet her, she's about fifteen years old. Yeah. Do you think are you are you tapping into something really universal and adolescent when you have your protagonist be an invisible fifteen year old? Is oh, that- for sure. <laughs> For sure. You know, I mean, there is, there's this funny thing that happens in early adolescence um, uh, that they call the, um, uh, psychologists call it the invisible audience, mm-hmm. where um, they sort of feel um, uh, painfully visible all the time. Um, and, you know, um, my fly was open at school and everybody saw and everybody's talking about it, right? <laughs> but in fact, nobody does because they're all just thinking about themselves. Right, right. And, um, but like, but there is this sort of like um, uh, um, conflicting needs in, in them. Like on one hand, they have this um, uh, this feeling of of um, of 
painful visibility and also needing to be seen and then also needing to disappear. Um, And and both of those things are true at the same time, all the time. And it's hard. You know, being a kid is really hard. Uh, I'm amazed at kids. Um, uh, And I tell this to kids all the time. If you ever hear an adult saying being a kid is easy, they are not being truthful with you at all. It is hard work being a kid. And so, so yeah, I mean, um, I think, I think that, um, there, one of the things about being invisible though, is that there is power in invisibility, you know? And I think a lot of, you know, sort of young, um, I think a lot of young teenage girls learn that too. Um, uh, that, um, uh, you know, how we choose to be seen and how we choose to be invisible. Um, uh, it gives you some control over your world too. I felt, especially I think in the relationship between, shall we say, authority and population, Mm -hmm. I felt these overtones of 1984, you know, there's the big, the billboards and everything. How, to what extent were you influenced by other dystopian or totalitarian literature? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, uh, uh, 1984 and Brave New World. I mean, I read those, um, uh, I read those as a teenager and, um, uh, and they were kind of transfixing for me at the time. Time. Um, but also, um, but at the same time, um, uh, I was also, you know, profoundly influenced by, um, by Karl Marx and I was, um, influenced by, um, I, um, uh, Dorothy Day. Um, I read everything that Dorothy Day ever read and, um, I, and, and, and just looking at the ways in which, um, I, you know, um, haves and have-nots are, are 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 sort of you know there's this gulf between them in this um, in this country as well as the way in which resources get manipulated and manipulated over time um, uh, to you know um, so that those who have can keep on having and those who don't have will never uh, be able to bubble right. up and and those structures we see them in our country we see them in other countries sure. as well and um, and seeing that as a kid and I used to um, I used to volunteer at um, uh, something called Hope Community um, uh, in Minneapolis, which started out as a um, uh, uh, shelter for um, uh, victims of domestic violence and then ended up um, having a lot of different... it's a, it's like a safe haven for a lot of different sorts of people. And I worked there for a long time. And, um, and so those experiences, like those come into my work in all kinds of different ways, um, and kind of how I see the world and how I see magical worlds too. Um, and, um, and sort of my hopes for how things can change. We talked about this a little bit before, but I want to sort of drill down on it some. Do you think in writing dystopian literature in particular, that what you don't tell us is just as important as what you do tell us? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, because, and I think, I think the, because a lot of times, you know, when, when you're writing, um, uh, you know, con- some kind of um, uh, uh, dystopian story, there's the whole story of like how we get there. That's, that's usually vanished, right? Right. right. And, and that's vanished on purpose um, uh, because, you know, the, um, uh, because I think that the message is that, you know, we, you know, wickedness exists everywhere, right? And it does out and, and it's really, um, it can be very problematic when, um, uh, when wickedness is empowered, right? Um, and so I think that um, uh, the message ends up being that this can happen to any culture at any time um, and has and has. 
and is now, you know, and yeah. um, in all kinds of different places, in all kinds of different situations, um, uh, where um, uh, where we we have this sort of you know um, uh, um, uh, empowered wickedness and disempowered goodness. Yeah. I think also by as you say vanishing the story of how we got there, mm-hmm. you point out the the power and the danger. Mm-hmm. Of allowing stories to vanish. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and if we if we don't know how we got to mm-hmm. any place where we are, then you know how how can we decide where we're going to go? Absolutely, absolutely. Along the same lines, I'm fascinated, especially in a story with dual timelines like the unlicensed magician, because I yeah. I do use right. those as I said it's in my novels house. too. <laughs> um, in in how you decide what order you're going to reveal information in. Um, <clears throat> And, and how you're going to have the past and the present connecting through that information being revealed to the reader in a certain order. How, how do you tackle those issues? Gosh, it's, uh, I mean, so much of um, uh, those sorts of decisions are all um, uh, entirely intuitive. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not something that I really plan out. I don't, I don't, I'm not a planner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't plan out anything. I just follow where things lead. And so, um, so in this particular story, I didn't plan out the rate of revelation at all. I just, um, uh, I just was completely trusting my gut and, yep. um, uh, and, and, and that's what came out. So yeah. I find often what I'll do is I'll, that same thing that you just described. And then, then I will go back and mm-hmm. go, okay, well, I could tease out this connection yes. a little bit. Well, I, I can, can maybe this, this would work better if mm-hmm. I didn't reveal this quite so soon. So, so in the editing process, we I, yeah. I work on that a little bit. For sure. There's a line in the story that I found especially haunting. I mean, I'm always kind of looking for these, these lines that just jump off the page at me. And it's this, the first act of cruelty made the thousands that followed infinitely easier. Yeah. Do you think that's true for anyone? Oh my gosh. I think it's really, really true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really, really true. Um, And of course, I mean, um, uh, some of that too comes from my previous life working with um, uh, victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think think that, um, I mean, that's the thing, like wickedness sort of compounds, right? You know, and um, uh, and, and once we normalize um, uh, abnormal behavior, then um, it's very easy to, that's why we have to hold the line. You know, on all kinds of stuff. I love this moment, and I'm not giving away the story here, but when Marla suddenly expresses the word ballerina Mm -hmm. with all its associated meaning without ever having heard the word, ever having seen a ballerina, ever heard orchestral music. And again, as in 1984, to me, this got at the relationship between freedom and language. When ballet is taking away from us, our our language shrinks. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1984, by shrinking the language, Big Brother is exerting control over the way that we think of things. Right. What do you see as a relationship between language and freedom? Oh my gosh, incredibly so. Um, so uh, the cool thing about language is that language is um, is intertwined with cognition, right? Um, uh, so as our language grows, our we we actually have new pathways in our brain, you know. And and this is true with not only language but also uh, you know complex language too, mm-hmm. um, and you know and ideas and all of these different things, you know. 
know, we have um, our, our brain uses the system of um, assimilation and accommodation. You know, either I assimilate um, uh, new bits of information into like categories that I already have, or my brain makes a new shelf right? For like these new things. Right. And, um, and so, I mean, one of the things that was so terrifying in, in 1984 is that by shrinking the language, you're, you're literally shrinking what people know and also how they can think and how complex their thoughts can be, you know? Um, uh, and, um, you know, if, if big brother is the only source of truth, um, uh, then even their own ability to be able to make sense of things becomes infinitely more uh, difficult, right? And um, and so I do think that um, uh, that being able to um, uh, have um, uh, language around experiences that um, that are outside of our own experience helps us to um, uh, to create not only like our own sense of being able to think about our own freedom and somebody else's freedom and to understand that those two things are linked. You know, um, if, if, if you're not free, then I can't be free too, you know? Um, and, um, and if I'm able to sort of create language and have understanding around, around your lack of freedom, right. Um, uh, then, then that allows me to, um, enlarge my own world at the same time. So I do think that, um, uh, that having language for, um, being able to understand, you know, you know, different types of discrimination, different types of, um, of subjugation, um, uh, different types of harm that, um, uh, you know, human beings inflict on other human beings. Uh, if we can understand that and have language around that, then we can collectively work together to change it. So I do think that um, uh, language and freedom are inextricably linked. It, it makes me glad to be involved with the English language, which is yeah. such a free and open language yeah. in terms of creating new terms when needed, adopting mm-hmm. words from other languages around the world. Mm-hmm. And I contrast that with, for instance, you know, stories that I don't know that this is the case so much anymore, but we used to hear stories of sort of the language police in France. Yeah. To, we don't want the drug store. Yeah, we, don't, yeah, yeah. we don't want Westernisms in our language. And I think it's I think one of the great things about about English is its willingness to to adopt and adapt. Yeah, 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 um, for sure. It, it, in spite of what you know, the authorities might think about that. Yes, we do not have a council of immortals right. <laughs> in France. <laughs> so before we go to our our last set of questions, I, I want to return to your website for just a minute. Oh yes, please. You describe yourself as author, teacher, mom, Newbery medalist, terrible gardener and maker of pie. So I have to ask this question, what kind of pie? Oh my gosh, my favorite kind of pie is an apple pear ginger um, with you. Um, so it's um, crystallized ginger, and then you pour cream on the top of the, on the um, uh, on the crust, and it's awesome. This I have to say, tell our listeners this makes me slightly nervous because Kelly's coming to my house for dinner tonight with the rest of the authors, and uh, we don't have any pie that's you know anywhere what? near that yummy sounding. It's okay. <laughs> We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, or you can take longer if you need. But I hope they'll give us some something to think about and give our listeners a little insight into Kelly Barnhill. So if you're ready for the speed round. I'm ready. We shall begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, heavens to Betsy. Um, what word do I... You know... Um, Gosh, now that you say that, I'm just like, wait, do I even know any words? I don't even... 
It is early in the day. Early in the day, there's a word that I have used more often than I should, and it. I know I'm going to mispronounce it. I know it. Um, uh, uh, indefatigable. Um, I think that's. I think that's right. right. Yeah. I think yeah. that it's one. It's you know, when word. I was a little kid, I knew all these words that I would be able to read, and that I didn't know how to say them. Oh yeah, and especially I read you know Narnia and books from oh, England, yeah. and th- with words that have different pronunciations. Yeah. And, you know. yeah, 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 for sure. Indefatigable. I think I've used it in four different short stories, and it's and I have no I have no right to right. <laughs> <laughs> What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, reverie. I hate it so much. (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write? You know, my favorite place to write is the, uh, in the Hennepin County Library, they have these little workrooms that you can check out that have a great big window that looks out into downtown. Oh, nice. That's my favorite spot. Where could you never write? (laughs) My mother-in-law's house, but then I, <laughs> but then I, I was able to, but for a long time I believed that I couldn't write there. Actually, one place that I really can't write is is my my childhood home, my parents' house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm way too distracted there. My parents would love it if I would write there, but I can't. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? All of them. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? On my own. Ooh. Um, I think the first book that I remember reading um, was probably, or at least that I have like a, a strong memory of reading, mm-hmm. was uh, Wizard of Oz. What are you reading now? Oh, well, I just finished um, uh, uh, the new book by Anne Ursu mm-hmm. um, uh, called The Lost Girl, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, so, yeah. What book would you like to have written? Oh, gosh. That's a fantastic question. I mean, really everything that I've read, I wish that I had written it. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Um, you know, I started my career as a poet. Hmm. Um, and at some point, uh, that skill was lost to me. Um, and I, I don't write poetry anymore. Um, and I wish that I had, um, I would, having a collection of poetry would have been, would have been a wonderful thing, but I don't think I ever will. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? What I would love to have a reader tell me is I got an idea from reading your book and this is my book that I've written. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Kelly Barnhill, whose new book, Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories, is available wherever books are sold. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, we'll be talking with my friend and fellow Winston-Salem writer, Sarah McCoy, about her new Anne of Green Gables prequel, Marilla of Green Gables. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.